Hello and welcome to Silence, a podcast that gives women in science, technology, engineering and maths or STEM an opportunity to share honestly and openly about what it's really like working in these typically male-dominated subjects. Each week, one woman shares her stories and experiences. She could be a public figure, the girl next door or someone from a far-off land. The point is she'll be deliberately kept anonymous and disguised to ensure that we're not distracted by the details of her achievements, her labels, or what she looks like. I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, also a woman in STEM. I studied mechanical engineering and ended up as a television broadcaster. I've worked on and reported on some cutting edge technology and innovation over the years. And through my television work, I've met some incredible women from a diverse range of STEM fields. And you know what? I've been more amazed about what I've learned from these women when the cameras have been turned off and they're just being themselves. These women have amazingly impressive CVs, but most importantly, they're human, just like the rest of us. And it's their off-air honesty that I'd love to share with you through silence. This week, my guest is in the field of zero-waste fashion and material development. Hi. Hi. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to, uh, to share this journey. I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you for doing something that's so unusual. Yes, yes, it is very unusual. And actually, the path to get here was has also been really unusual. Really? What was that path? So my background is in architecture. I have a master's in architecture from Yale. And uh, when I graduated uh, from architecture school, I thought, like most of my peers and colleagues, that I would go straight into that profession. Um, and so, yeah, my first job out of graduate school was in an architecture office in Los Angeles, and um, that was basically an interesting thing. So I, I came out of architecture school at a time when everybody's future was a little bit uncertain, right? It was it was sort of a depression. Architecture especially was one of those things that was hit really hard. So I went into my first interview with uh, what you would call a star architect, right? So one of these big name big name male architects and I sat down with him and we had the interview and he um, offered me this job on the spot in the interview and he said okay so we're negotiating which I don't know they, as, a, as a woman going through school no one really teaches you about negotiation and standing up for yourself so I came out of like a very amazing institution with very little knowledge of how to you know, find my footing in this world. So I go into this interview, he offers me the job and he offers to pay me $18 an hour. And so I'm kind of like doing the math in my head really quickly on what that is going to be and if I can actually live on it. And again, like this is a very big name archetype. So I say on the spot, yes, I'll do it. I know it's going to be long hours. So I figure out the, you know, the pay. And I go into the office and it's a culture it's culture. The culture in architecture offices is really long hours. And so I'm working 80 to 100 hours a week for the first month. And I get my first paycheck and it's for 40 hours a week. So I go to the office manager and I say, well, you know, I've worked 200 hours and I'm getting paid for 80. And she says to me, well, no, nobody here gets paid more than 40 hours a week. So that's just the baseline. You, you don't get you don't get overtime. You don't even get paid for the hours you've worked. Wow. So my, I kind of was, I mean, I was really taken aback by that, right? I thought, okay, well, this is kind of BS. I'm not happy with this. So I started actually cutting back my hours really dramatically and working 40 hours a week. And that did not go over well in this office culture where part of the, 
you know, part, part of the culture is just unpaid work, really. Um, so when I started working 40 hours a week, really the entire office sort of turned on me. It was, it was very clearly not a good fit for me. Um, and so actually I was fired from that job, like within the first three months of working there. Uh, and that's when I started to reevaluate what is it that, like, what path am I on and what, what am I really interested in and what do I want to be doing? What kind of work do I want to be doing? Um, and so I started shifting um, pretty quickly into doing material development. Um, I had edited a, uh, an issue of the Yale Architectural Journal and in, in that issue was this company that I really admired and I thought, okay, well, you know, if I'm going to think of my dream job, if I'm going to try and visualize that and, and make it happen, what is it? And I reached out to this company and said, basically, you know, I want to work here. I want to work with you. I like what you're doing. And so that was really my first job where I really understood what I wanted to be doing and what was interesting to me. Did you not have any kind of uh, inklings when you were a kid about what you wanted to do? Oh, sure. Yes, definitely. I mean, I always, actually, my, my parents would would oftentimes make fun of me because we'd be driving along and I would say, stop the car, mom, like, stop the car, dad, there's like a chair or a piece of metal on the side of the road that I want to pick up. So we, our house was always full of strange objects and uh, and sort of, I would go around some of the local tile shops and, and look through their trash bins and get all the scraps and make things out of it. So I, I always knew that I, that was always something that I loved doing. But when I got to college, um, Actually, funny enough, my my first uh, major was a was pre med. I think that was sort of like a default for for me. My dad was a doctor. I have some doctors in my family. So when I got to college, my default was like, okay, I'm gonna study pre med. And it took a year before I was like, wait, I'm not. This this isn't a good fit for me. I mean, I like science. Obviously, it's architecture and science kind of go hand in hand in a lot of ways. But um, but I switched to design and architecture pretty quickly. Because it was really something that it was always I was always passionate about. Um, but then traditional architecture, you'll find out, I, I found out when I came out of architecture school, is really, um, it's a really long process. It's grueling, and a lot of the, a lot of the work doesn't get built. It's a, it's a hard, slow process. So for me, I wanted to really be working with my hands. Um, I wanted to be working with materials. And uh, when I realized that that, could be more than just like a hobby that it could be an actual career I was pretty that was a pretty exciting shift for me and it's kind of interesting that you had to go through that torture of working 200 hours to actually uh, get to a point where you had to ask yourself hang on what is it I want to do with my career yes exactly and I think that you know again it was like a default you come out of a you come out of architecture school there's sort of an expectation in architecture that it's a very individual pursuit, right? Like a lot of the stuff we were taught in school has to do with this idea of individual genius, right? Like you're a person and you're a genius and you work alone and you you kind of like figure out everything. And then what I came to realize throughout the course of my career is that that's really not how anything works. You know, that ideas are obviously important, but there's a whole team of people that all contribute and make something amazing. Yeah. I work now really collaboratively. I love I love collaboration and, and interdisciplinary collaboration too. One of the really exciting things about my job, especially working in these material technology places, is that we would work. So I was working as an architect, figuring out fabrication, and I was working 
the first the first really great job that I had, I was working next to an automotive company and next to us was an aerospace company. So as as architects and fabricators trying to figure out these complex projects, we would oftentimes walk over to the automotive shop and say, like, hey guys, like how do you make how do you make a windshield? Like how what's that process look like? And then we would share technology we would actually share that technology and transfer it into architecture and architectural problem solving and that was all really fascinating. So that that process of realizing that actually what I learned in school about having to be an individual genius, like having to sort of come up with all the ideas yourself, that that really isn't the way that the world works. And I, I think women probably understand that more inherently, that, um, you know, that's part of the male-dominated architecture culture, too. It's like this this idea of architectural genius as one person. That's the story. That's the history of architecture. It's so interesting because I feel like you have never conformed to a conventional path and I I've only we've only been talking for a few minutes <laughs> um but I just it just seems so obvious to you that convention is just bs um but yet you come from quite a conventional beginning yeah. so you know what was your kind of mental state going from conventional to the unconventional? I mean, was there self-doubt? Was there, you know, huge amounts of confidence? Like, how were you through that transition? Um, I, I love that question, actually. It's really funny because there were so many times when I felt really out of place in certain situations. Was that at school? At school, no. But I always, I always had a desire to do unconventional things. Like, for example, when I was in architecture school, I, I always wanted to push the limits of what was possible. So I, at one point in my schooling, I took on building this project on the roof of the building. Um, and that was something that, you know, I had to go to the administration and get all their approval. And everybody was like, you're crazy, you're crazy, you're crazy. But when you pull off something like that, actually feels amazing um and then there's a lot of times that i can think of in my life where i felt um almost like it's like a pride i would say in in pushing those boundaries like my first job at this uh architectural technology company so i i know how to weld um i'm a welder and i went in so one of the benefits of working at a place like that is that you have all these amazing machines and the technology and so at the same time that i was working this job i was also building um we were also building our house and so i was actually late at night like in the shop welding the doors and um cnc cutting all of the cabinetry and again, like you had access to this amazing technology when you work in a field like that. And all of the guys in the shop, all of them, like bar none, they would like come and peek around the corner and they would be like, what is that woman doing? Like what's going on over there? She's like pulling metal out of the back and welding and welding things. And, like I, they did not understand that at all. So that, um, you know, and, and from my perspective, I'm looking over there and I'm saying like, you know what? hell yeah, this is awesome that I can do this. And, and I, I can sort of like change your perspective of what's possible. I mean, I, I found that particularly in fabrication and in industrial work like that, like 
everyone was constantly surprised that, first of all, wait, you, you can learn how to weld? I'm like, wait, yes, welding is not complicated. You just have to learn it. It's like a skill like anything else. What subjects did you do? Um, in college, I did uh, design and architecture. So I, I have a minor in art history. And at the time that I was in college, it wasn't really an architecture course. It was a design course, architecturally inspired design. So art history and design. But what about before before that? I mean, did you do any of the sciences? Or... I did. I mean, in, when I was in high school, it was basically just everything, right? I studied chemistry and physics, biology. I mean, I loved all of that stuff. It sounds like you had a strong science streak in your family because of um, your father being a doctor. And so was it a case of, yeah, of course, I'm going to do science subjects. But then, you know, your love of materials and everything was almost like a secret side hobby or something. It was. It was always a hobby, right? It was always something that my parents were like, you're, you're silly. Not, not silly, but I mean, they never discouraged me from doing it. But like when I learned how to weld and I started putting like odd metal sculptural pieces in their backyard, yeah. which, by the way, actually really funny really funny when I got home I came home after college so I in high school I learned how to weld and I had done like these sort of weird sculptural pieces that sat out in their lawn for a while they were like sort of abstract lawn sculptures I would say and then I came home um after college for a trip and they were all gone I said dad what did you do with my lawn sculptures and he's like he's like oh come on (laughs) those are it was time for those to go you know they didn't appreciate they didn't appreciate the art, artistic nature of it. But then again, they they never discouraged me from doing it, provided that I was doing well in all my other subjects, which I always was. So, what gave you the confidence to pursue something that was so unconventional? Let's see. I mean, I think that I always cared a lot about school, so I always did well in school. I've always been a confident person. Um, I think in some way it's something that I'm born with, right? Like I, I practiced, I, I always played sports. I played team sports. I was never the best at, I, I was never the best at anything, but I was always good and I'm a good team player and I, I really like being part of the team. And I think that when I went to explore new things, that people responded to that positivity, I would say. I mean, I'm, I've had a lot of hardship in life in some ways, and in, a, in other ways, I've had so much support. Right? Like, um, like when the, first, the first job that I got outside of architecture, like I said, I went to this company, I called Colgram, and I said, you know, I, I knew them because of this interview process we had gone through, this, this magazine the journal that I edited, but, you know, I went to them and I said, look, I, I really want to work here. I want to figure out, this is how I can help you. I want to figure out how to make it work. And they were really receptive to that kind of um, confidence and positivity. And, and therefore they were really supportive. I always wanted to try new things. That's in my blood. I always wanted to experiment, um, and learn and, and learn new things and learn how to actually put things together myself. I, I don't like, you know, my, it's funny, my, my father is very, uh, he's, he's not a good teacher, I guess I would say. So 
he would try to teach me how to do something and then he would just do it himself. Right. So, so I think in opposition to that, I was really like, I really, I got to learn how to do these things myself. Otherwise someone else is always going to do them for me. That's interesting that you felt that because some people are like, Oh, well things are being done for me. So why would I need to learn it? Yeah, I can, you took the opposite. I, see that. I was the, I was always in opposition to my father. <laughs> you mentioned that you have had a lot of support. Where was that support coming from? Well, I think that that's from teachers and from employers um, and from colleagues. You know, I think that in general, having a positive attitude and being willing to experiment that that my experience has been that people are mostly supportive of that. Um, you know, I've had people, I've had employers, like the the first summer that I was out here in LA, I went out and got a job in a welding shop. And my main driver for that was like, hey, I can help you with your projects during the day. Again, if you let me use your shop at night. So it was like, it's always been, um, I've, I've always had these sort of reciprocal relationships that I cultivate because I like that kind of relationship. So I've always found those people really supportive um, and help and helpful when you present stuff in the right way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I feel like people in general want to, you know, they, they want to work collaboratively and they want to do creative things, at least in, in my field. Um, but at the same yeah. time in architecture, when I started in that field, I realized very quickly that it was, it was the opposite. I felt, um, like in that first architecture job, I felt really small and not not helpful. I felt like that was a you know I felt like I was wasting my time and no one was really interested in hearing my ideas. And I think that that very quickly is why I was like, wait, I need to get out of this. Yeah, it it sounds as though you have a lot of confidence in yourself, um, and so you know when you're willing to be of service to other people, it's because you have confidence that you can provide something useful for others yes I hope so and I I would hope that all I you know I would hope that all people feel like that I I I very much try to instill that in my children and say like you know what you guys everybody has amazing knowledge to share yeah I I find that very inspiring um because I think sometimes some people might be starting uh with a certain level of self-doubt you know if we're particularly women in stem subjects you know sometimes we get quite self-conscious that we may not be as good in those kinds of subjects as uh maybe our male counterparts so for example with you welding have you ever felt conscious of being female in quite a male dominated area Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And in fact, you know, that's something that I, I get frustrated with myself often, actually, because I do acquiesce to the, the men around me, right? Like, in that welding shop, I always, there was, there was a time in my life, I, I try very hard not to do this anymore. But there was definitely a time in my life when I would play dumb and, and on construction sites all the time, you know, like, oh, wait, how do you detail? How do you detail this door? You know, how do these two things go together? And then whoever, whatever contractor or welder or fabricator, you know, they, they feel like I, I found. So actually before, I'll, I'll step back a second. Before I went back to graduate school, I worked for two years uh, for an architect in San Francisco. 
And in that job capacity, so I, I didn't have a graduate degree. I was just getting into architecture and just like trying to see even if I liked it. Um, and I was oftentimes on construction sites. And that was a horrible experience for the most part, because most of those foremen are, they're pretty sexist, right? It's like you go into the office to have a meeting with someone about the project you're working on, and there's a calendar on the wall, and it has, it has you know, a 75% naked woman laying back on a motorcycle, you know, or, or an actual naked woman. And you're kind of like sitting in these meetings in really uncomfortable situations. And in those situations, I found even though I didn't like this, and I, I didn't really recognize the feeling at the time, but I found very much um, that I would acquiesce to those men. Because they didn't, it, there's like a lack of respect, right? And also I was young at that time, so it, it's the combination of both of those things. But So oftentimes in those situations, it would be like, wait, what do you think is the right thing? Mm-hmm. So I would, ne- I, I, it took me a long time to actually, to actually express expertise I guess I would say that you know and there is an expertise that comes with age but a lot of times you know in in fabrication and this is a really male dominated industry architecture and materials and and industrial fabrication um that there there was a lot of moments when instead of saying what I knew to be right I would say well what do you think is right yeah, and that comes. I think that's something that honestly I learned as a woman or as a girl growing up. It's like you have to voice your opinion in a very particular way so that you come across in in a way that people want to help. And you know, there's there's different. I've had different experiences with that, but many of my experiences have been sort of like shaded by that um, by that sexism for sure. Mm. I mean, for some women, that actually holds them back or they even drop out. But you managed to overcome that potential chipping away at your self-esteem for being a woman. Um, What would you say were the main things that helped you pull through that? Well, I think I would say that the first thing is that I really identified where I wanted to be working and what I wanted to be doing. So... So having that focus, and then and then there was a balance between things that I know that I can speak knowledgeably on and things that I have to learn. So the people that were around me then, like the team I was working with, then I was able to develop this relationship where I was an expert in some things and they were expert in some things, and we were sharing knowledge in a way that was very productive. Mm. So once I, once I sort of identified the kind of company I wanted to work at and the kind of job that I wanted to be doing, and and that really had a lot to do with what I was actually good at. Then I got really confident in terms of managing projects and um, suggesting solutions and suggesting different courses of action. And then we would test things out. Like the, those days were really collaborative and they were really experimental in terms of what worked and what didn't work. And that's because we were working on projects that were really new. We were sort of, we were developing new materials and new fabrication technology and. Uh, that stuff was really collaborative, and that helped me. That helped me grow a lot in terms of finding my voice. And it was a small team of people, and I think that helps too. There was five of us really that were were working together closely at that point. So it was a case of having a real passion for something, like a genuine interest in something, and following it. 
Yeah, exactly. And then and recognizing and, and not settling. Like my first job out of graduate school in architecture, I really settled for the first thing that came my way. Instead of being thoughtful and identifying what I wanted to do and really going after it and being a little more patient and finding that thing. It's kind of a great lesson for life, really, because it's not just about career, but it's also about other things maybe that are more personal, you know, really knowing what it is you want and then going for it. Yeah, and that stuff is not easy. I mean, it's, it's certainly, it certainly takes a little time. I wish that I had been taught that in school. You know, I, I wish someone had sat me down and been like, this is how you negotiate and let's practice it. <laughs> like, when I have students now that are actually going out to apply for jobs, I will oftentimes like call them into my office and be like, let's sit down for an hour and practice. Like, let's just practice. Since we're going to practice interviewing, we're going to practice negotiating, we're going to practice asking questions. And that stuff is just, it goes such a long way in success, towards success. Mm. I think, and again, that gets back to this idea of like individual genius. I think I was taught in school that you're just supposed to be awesome at this stuff. Like it's supposed to come easy, um, but, but you, you just got to work at it. You got to practice it. Yeah, I just feel like your confidence basically just smashed through any kind of discrimination that you may have faced. Um, I mean, it may have not felt like that at the time, but I think uh, your confidence kind of won in the end. Well, I really appreciate you saying that. I, I hope that it did. Like, even on these construction sites with the foreman, I always was like, I, I mean, I never really got angry. I would sometimes get angry personally. I always tried to be a good team player and, and be confident in front of them. I, I just felt like, I don't know, again, maybe this was something I learned, but I felt like that was a better way to go. Now, as I get older, I'm a little angrier about sexism in general, and I, I'm a little quicker to voice my opinion now that I'm older. Mm. Um, but that also feels okay. Like I, I feel more confident now than I did when I was younger. But, but you're right, I always did... Um, I always went in strong, I guess I would say. I always tried to yeah. go in like powerfully into those situations so that I I mean the feeling that feeling of, of feeling weak or trampled on, that's a, not a good feeling. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like you ever even if you felt it, it doesn't sound like you ever showed it. I tried not to, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> kind of quietly being um quietly calculating your response so that so as not to come across as weak yeah exactly oh my gosh it's yeah. so complicated to be a woman isn't it I think so I mean what does make you angry today in terms of sexism because uh within your career field you know what are the issues that are faced by women today well I now have sort of, I've, I've separated myself a little bit from those issues. So now I have my own company and I'm able to sort of dictate how the office culture is. Um, mm. It's very equal and very collaborative and everybody has a voice. But I think in general in architecture, it's the same stuff that I faced when I was coming out of school, which is like the, it, there's just a lot of sexism in general. I mean, the, Stuff that makes me really angry today, I think, is this, like, I I still oftentimes get talked down to, even though I'm definitely an expert in my field at this point. Um, 
and that is really frustrating. I mean, I think in the world in general, I'm passionately committed to this whole movement, um, this whole movement of expression of sexual assault and sexism and trying to make that visible and vocal about it so that people can understand it. Uh, that's stuff that I work on on a weekly basis, just social justice outside of business in general. Um, and I, you know, I have two daughters and I'm raising them in the same way. Those numbers are all really horrifying. So I hope that they, that they can grow up. But I, you know, I see my daughter actually, she's nine and I already see it from the media that she watches. I already see her like apologizing for her actions in a way. And, and that's something I do too. Like oftentimes I'll be like, I'm sorry that sorry I did that. I catch myself saying sorry all the time. I'm like, oh gosh, like stop apologizing for just being a human being. Um, so I, I catch her doing that too, and that stuff really upsets me. Uh, and I think, again, that's cultural. In in architecture, I think it's the same, you know, it's, it's the same in a lot of other industries where the time pressure is so intense and the uh, the culture of the profession is so intense that women don't really have a lot of space to have families, um, to have, to have both. It's like, you still, I still see there's, it's very much about making a choice, right? You have to choose, like, am I going to devote myself to my career? And you know what, even in my own career, so I've pivoted a few times, but one of those pivots that I had to make was because I had kids. So I was, I got pregnant really, I got pregnant at 30, surprise which was awesome that's a great way to get pregnant by the way just by surprise so I was pregnant by surprise but at the time I was working for a company I was traveling weekly or bi-weekly working for this company um, in Utah and traveling back and forth so the, the demands of my schedule were really intense so when I got pregnant I had to really scale that back and that dramatically shifted my job so my job shifted from really interesting architectural projects, really interesting material development uh, and experimentation and working with this great team of people to being very isolated and working on my computer because the the company that I worked for didn't have the flexibility for me to have a baby and also be a part of this team. So at that point in my career, my job shifted, um, again, from being really interesting to being very much about like cost analysis and cost estimates and that did give me a certain amount of flexibility uh, in terms of raising kids, but it changed my career dramatically. So at, at that moment, I really did have to make a choice between do I want to have a family or do I want to continue on this very intense and time-consuming path to, to, to be really successful and pull off some of these big projects that I want to do. And, and I really didn't have a good choice. You know, it wasn't like I could measure these two things equally and make an educated decision between them. My choice was really dictated by really the, the state of my body and that I wasn't able to travel and therefore my job shifted. So rather than the company accommodating my needs and allowing me to grow as my family grew, it was definitely a step backwards for me, which, you know, ultimately, like I said, I pivoted and now I have another, I have a company that's totally separate from that, but I had to make a giant pivot because I had a family. And I think that happens to a lot of women in architecture. It's like the demands are so intense. The time demands are so intense. And there's not culturally, there's not a, 
sort of understanding or accommodation for the desire to have a family. And that is really depressing uh, because it's, it doesn't really have to be either or. Like, you, you know, I have now at my company now, so I now have a two-year-old daughter and at my company now we have a nursery. She comes into work. We have a nanny and anyone at the studio that has a baby is welcome to bring their children in. It's like it, it can be part of the company culture and it's really lovely to work like this, actually. It sounds like it's part of the culture of the future as yes. female. Yes, like this much more holistic view of working and innovating, but also being around your family and your children. It's like they that is absolutely possible. Um, but it's not at all part of architectural culture. It's like very much frowned upon still to, you know, you can't, you can't bring your kids to work. Who can bring their kids to work? So, and then how do you have mm. kids if you don't have flexibility to sort of like absorb them into whatever speed bumps you hit along the way? When you first found out you were pregnant and it was a surprise, did you ever think that you would be in the position you're in today where you're running your own company, your employees are bringing their kids no. into work? Did you ever think that would be even no, possible? I still am like pinching myself. I can't believe I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, definitely, I definitely did not have this vision at that time. So, I mean, you're pioneering in that sense. I mean... How how has it been possible to achieve this? Well, so this has been, that's an interesting question. And it's still, I won't speak like totally honestly, it's still tenuous. Like I'm not certain that it's going to work yet. You know, it's, it's all, it, there's a lot of uncertainty in starting a business. Um, and I'm still trying to figure all of that out in all honesty. So it's like, um, but I did decide, so I decided before before I was pregnant with my third child, I decided my grandfather had died. I got $30,000 from his passing, and I decided, okay, I'm going to start this company. I have this idea. I want to do it. It's going to be amazing. And so I took that money, and, and we started um, and really, like, sort of bootstrapped along the way. And then I was pregnant again, also kind of by surprise. And at that moment, it was the kind of thing where I was like, wait, I've just started this business. I'm a year into it. I definitely don't want to give it up. It's like, a, it's really amazing. There's, there's a lot of potential. So how do we, how do we do this? And at the time I had a business partner and she also was pregnant actually. So together we were like, okay, we, we want to keep doing this. How do we do it? And really it was a matter of uh, having our family support, really. Like my husband has been very supportive. Her husband was really supportive. So we were able to, without honestly, without them, we would not have been able to continue. So we were able to get through that year of having of being pregnant and having a baby because of the support of our families. And, and now we're at the point where, you know, we're, we're, the business is actually breaking even and we're starting to have profit and that's a shift. Um, but the, those beginning years were not easy. And if we didn't have financial support from our families, we would not have been able to do this. And so with all of that said, it sounds like you really are a woman that has it all. Do you think that's true? And what do you think the keys are to, to having it all? I mean, I kind of love that and I kind of 
hate it, <laughs> right? <laughs> because it's really loaded. I do have it all. I honestly, and I look around in the morning when I wake up and I'm like, wow, this is incredible. You know, I have like kids climbing all over me and there's a lot of joy and I am very lucky to be able to do what, I'm, what I love for sure. Um, and one of the keys to that, one of the keys to having it all, oh my gosh. I guess I would say I have a lot of help. Um, so while I do run this company, I and and our household, um, I have a lot of help. I think there is a level of confidence that I am blessed with that I uh, that's very helpful in just sort of forging forward. Um, my personality is not very introspective. I know that that's, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people look look inward, and that's amazing. And I applaud you if you can do like deep in you know deep self analysis. But I don't do that. I don't ever do that. So I'm I'm really like uh, as my personality is very outward facing. I'm I'm looking out into the world a lot, and I I am confident, and I feel like I can do good. Hmm, that's so interesting. This uh that you talk about inward and outward facing perspectives. Um what do you mean by that and 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 why do you think they're advantageous or not? Well, I think so I I have I've always found it's funny because I've gone through some personal trauma in the last year that has forced me to kind of look inward more than I am typically comfortable with. <laughs> like, be, be way outside of my comfort zone in terms of I, I have actually gone to therapy for the first time in my life, which has been a very uncomfortable thing for me. But it, it just takes up a lot of energy. It's really consuming, right? Like, when you're looking in on yourself, you have to feed it and you have to sort of like talk to yourself and analyze it, and it, it just takes. A lot of energy so for me personally I I don't hold on to things I don't hold grudges I for the most part really um, things sort of slide off my back and I can let them go and I find that really really helpful in my life and then what I try to do is really look look outward into the world for inspiration so I I feel confident that I'm a good person and I don't need to spend or I don't it's not that I don't need to I don't want to spend a lot of time being introspective because I find that for me personally, it just is exhausting and it takes up too much of my energy. Mm. Uh, and it it makes me, uh, I don't know, it makes me self-centered, right? It, it, as opposed to what I want to be, which is, uh, which is looking outward and connecting with people and finding um, confluences and finding ways to collaborate and, and finding inspiration in other people. Uh, I find that to be much more productive for me in my life in general, in terms of finding joy and being um, being happy. That's amazing. And I, I don't think I don't think it's like I know it's it's really easy to say. It's really easy to say all these things. It's much easier to say it than it is to practice it. But in general, when I find myself being really introspective, I get sad. Um, not because not because I not because I find things that I don't like just because it takes a lot of time and energy and I find it really consuming. 
Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you absorb all the good things in the world and you don't want to dwell <laughs> on any of the negative things. Um, and also, you don't take any of the negative things that do exist personally. I mean, that seems like how you've approached the world. This has been a particularly difficult year for that, I have to say. There is a lot of negativity in the world right now. Mm -hmm. um, oh, that, this has been a really tough year for that, actually, living in America in this time. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I do try I, – I try really hard to find – you know, to have my perspective to be one of joy and thankfulness. Like I, I have, like you said, I, I really do have, and I've built this thing that I am very proud of and that is, um, that's working. That's surprising me a little bit that it's working. Uh, but it, it's the more attention and more love that I can devote to, to this business and to my family, the better I feel. And that's, and, and then again, with the negativity in the world, that stuff is um, stuff is actionable. And when I can meet people, like we have this amazing community here of activists that it's incredible to spend time with those people, you know? So the, the when I can take action on the stuff that's upsetting me, I, oh, that also makes me feel better. Hmm. That's like a you know, environmental issues and even stuff as simple as writing postcards to the the EPA or writing postcards to, you know, my senator or we do that with our kids or going to do beach cleanup and stuff. Like we'll, we'll do that stuff not not all the time, but occasionally and that that way of being in the world I also find really inspiring. Yeah. What's driving you? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, that's something I struggle with a little bit, actually. There's definitely days when I have to figure that out, especially because I'm in this big transition. There's success. I'm driven by success, right? And how you measure that is different for everybody. But for me, I would measure that by having a, having a measurable impact on the world. That's what I want to do. Um, so that's something that I'm pushing really hard for uh, and working really hard for it. I would say that that is my biggest driver right now and then uh, and then also I want to inspire my kids like the idea of that they could see a woman a successful woman business owner who sort of doing doing things the way she wants to I hope, I hope that this works because I would really like to set that example for my children why do you think girls are not going into technology well I think that there's a lot of cultural reasons for that, right? It's like, uh, I see that in my daughters from the get-go. You go into the toy store and it's really horrifying, actually, the way that things are marketed to girls and boys. Um, you know, you walk in and this is stuff that you've heard before, I'm sure, but you walk into any any toy store and all the girl things are kitchens and dolls and all the boy things are cars and science kits and like all the t-shirts all the girls t-shirts have unicorns on them and all the boys t-shirts have astronauts on them it didn't seem to have stopped you from learning how to weld funny funny enough i think when i was a kid it wasn't so pronounced as this like i i mean i definitely had barbies and i also had like star wars figures <laughs> you know growing up and I also had cars, and I also played in the mud. Um, 
you know, but I, I think it's more pronounced now than it was when I was a kid. And no, I never, I, I think maybe my parents were really good at just saying like, there's no limits and um, there's no limits to what you can do. I always felt, I always felt that. Um, and I definitely try to impart that to my kids too, but it's very difficult right now when, when the marketing is so strong and the, all of the media that they take in right now is so gendered. It's really, really scary. Um, and I, I don't know if that's, you know, there are these strong messages of, of girl power too. Uh, I hope that that can counteract this very strong media, the, the very strong media. I, I definitely find that stuff terrifying. So I, and, and you know, it's funny because it's not just, so, so we've been talking for a while and you got to get a sense of my personality and I definitely try to push my daughter into alternative everything right? Like, whatever is on the boy's side, that's what you should be buying, right? Or like, you know, and, and her perspective on this is that she, she's taken in all of this media, and she's uncomfortable going to the boy's side. Like she, she doesn't want to do that. She says, no, I can't, I can't buy that. Like, Wait, why? Like, you're, she, she's falling into these kind of stereotypes just because of the the way that she's been marketed to in the media, which is, again, it's terrifying. I find that really scary. Yeah, I mean, you know, with your daughters in mind or any other kind of little girls who are right at the start of choosing subjects at school and building a sense of identity, you know, what key messages would you give them? Yeah, I think that that, that is immensely important to craft those messages and I think what I would say is that well for one thing they can do anything that anything is possible for real I try really hard myself to talk to girls as uh, you know just the same as anyone right like asking them what they're thinking and what are you feeling about this and validating their feelings and their emotions um, I think that what I see is that girls, just like I feel actually, they have a tendency to apologize for their opinions. So it's a matter of just saying your opinion is valid and I want to hear your thoughts. You know, your brain is amazing. I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear what's in your head. Um, you know, and you're, you're creative and you're interesting and you can do anything you want. Like the, the world right now is incredible in that way. And there really is a lot of opportunity. And I hope that there's not as much exclusion. I mean, this whole movement that's happening right now, I, I am floored by the women that are coming, coming out and speaking up and saying, you know, this is why I didn't report sexual assault, because it's so pervasive culturally. So this level of uh, expression is really moving me. And I, I hope it continues. I, I think it's really powerful. It is very interesting times um, because I feel we're in a transition where women are fed up of not having a voice. Oh, for sure. And men may be getting fed up with not being able to express their sensitivity. Yes, I hope so. I hope so. That is definitely something that I teach my son and that I talk to all his friends about. Like you, you, there, there is no weakness in being sensitive. 
there is no weakness in that at all. That is powerful too. I mean, those are, those are amazing lessons. And I, yeah, the this whole movement where women are speaking up, like I never had a voice. I could never speak up about any kind of assault or, um, you know, even just discrimination. That wasn't something that was possible when I was growing up. It, it just wasn't listened to. There was no forum for that. There was no, um, there was no one who cared. It was right, like you, you were assaulted in a hotel or whatever. I mean, wherever. And I had one experience where I was really like, really badly physically assaulted in an elevator, and I had no one to stop. Like there wasn't anyone who would listen. The police didn't care. You know, it was like the kind of thing where you just didn't feel like you had an outlet for it. And now, if you can and and people will listen and and not judge you. That is like an incredible shift. I was constantly judged for how I looked in architecture. You know the way I dressed and the way I looked, and I was not. I I was never provocative, but I'm like tall and thin, and I wore skirts. And you know when you when I would go, I mean whatever when I would go out, I would dress sexy. Like that was always that I was always judged for that. And that was always a good thing, right? It was to my benefit too. So it's both. I, I, you know, it's, it's complicated, all that stuff. But it is very complicated. And what seems to be coming out very strongly from talking to you is that it never influenced you. Like you mentioned earlier, water off a duck's back. Like it never stuck. And I just think, you know, out of everything that. I've heard from you that seems to have been the consistently most powerful tool that you have which is that it never ever stuck yeah that's true that's really true and I really appreciate you saying that and it it didn't I was able to um sort of dismiss those traumas and not carry them with me you are an unusual find in the sense that you haven't hung on to any negativity. You've just grown from it. I mean, that's incredible. Thank you. I appreciate that. Like in retrospect, looking back on my life, I I, I didn't, um, I wouldn't even say I worked hard to let go of that stuff. I just did. Mm. Do you have any idea why? I mean, what may have taught you or who might have inspired you to do that? Well, I think it's, partially innate right like I'm like I said before my personality is very is, is not introspective I mm. I didn't ever think about or care about what other people thought of me I think I would say yeah I never even I would I even I would even take it a step further like, I never even realized I'll give you an example you know sometimes things just stick in your head yeah like so when I was round in, and round in and middle round. school Rounds and rounds. So when I was in middle school, I was at this middle school dance, and I was dancing, right? And I, whatever, have my own style of dancing, as everyone does. And and then, like, a number of years later, I realized that there was this boy at the dance that was totally making fun of me uh, and my, like, way of dancing, which, whatever, because, you know, I didn't learn how to dance until later in life, but who cares? Anyway, so I realized much later on that this boy was actually like making fun of my dancing. And so I would say that I was like really oblivious to that in a way that really serves me well in retrospect. Mm. But I, I was kind of oblivious to other people's opinions of me. 
and 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 I think that That's like awesome. I said, I think that that really served me well in a way that I didn't even understand. I didn't understand that growing up, but I was never caught up in um, I don't know, like popularity or, and I had friends across across the board in all social circles. Which I think actually maybe maybe that's it. It's like having a lot of different kinds of people around you. And that helped me to not care as much about any one person, like what any one person thought. I think that's it right there. I feel like... Yeah, that's interesting. That's it. We've yeah. found the key, which is that in everything I've heard from you, the most fundamental characteristic that has served you um, to get where you are today, which is a very successful place where you, at least on the surface, appear to have it all, is that the one thing that really helped was not caring what people yeah. think and not taking things personally and being oblivious to societal expectation and past events and just forging on with yeah. what it is you want to do and having a very clear idea about that I love it I feel like it's an epiphany for me too to like have clarity on that and that's amazing yeah and that comes a lot from um I do think it comes from interacting with and trying to understand a lot of different kinds of people you've absorbed a lot of inspiration from people outside of you but it's all been morsels of information to really support the identity that you have wanted to create for yourself and what's different about the way you've done that compared to the majority of people is that you haven't lost your sense of self in all of that influence you've just reaffirmed who it is you want to be as an individual and that has just blown my mind because, you know, I've met you. I was, I've, I was from the moment I heard you speak, I was inspired by your clarity of, um, self (laughs) and, uh, you're very, yeah. Just hearing your story has really, supported that I think I don't even think you've been aware of that characteristic in you but it's really clear to me that um you know you you've you've just stayed very true to yourself thank you and I I I do feel that now coming out of this whole you know like when you look looking back and saying okay this is the path that you're on I I am at a transition point right now again where I have to sort of figure out what direction I'm going, which mm. now, now that we've had this conversation actually feels a little bit more exciting. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way because, you know, like I'm a little bit better equipped to make these decisions right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm so big on meditation and checking in with oneself and getting quiet um, and really kind of just uh, making sure that you're on your own path. But listening to you, I think you've just naturally done that. And it's inspiring because it your life really is the result of having done that, whether you've been aware of it or not. Um, and for that, I 
really thank you for for coming on this show. Oh, thank you so much. This has been extremely enjoyable. I really appreciate it. And it's hard, like, I don't often get to express myself like this. It feels pretty amazing, actually. Well, I think you've inspired others by sharing your experiences. So thank you. Thank you. Wow. What an incredible conversation. I, I, I literally feel like both of us have just had an epiphany. Once again, just totally inspired, but inspired in a way where I just feel it's so important to check in with oneself and to really ask yourself often, what is it that I'm trying to do? What is my purpose in life? And just staying true to that because we are often bombarded with outside influences and external stimulation and that can be a real source of inspiration but it should never ever lead you off your own path our guest today was certainly a fine example of that thank you so much for listening don't forget to subscribe to silence and catch you next week